Amen. If you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be again in Numbers 1, verses 1 through 16 today. Uh, we will be moving next week into the book, uh, but we're hitting the, 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 really the first verse. So if you uh, would uh, look at that with me today, and we'll read through the, all 16 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. On the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them, company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you from Reuben, Elizer, the son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, from Judah, Nashan, the son of Amanadab, from Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishan, Elishama, the son of Aminahud, and from Manasseh. Gamaliel, the son of Petazur, from Benjamin, Abaddon, the son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amashadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akran, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahara, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we have another reading of the Hebrew name list. Excellent, right? Well, we will continue to hear Hebrew names in numbers. For the very beginning of the book, there is a census, of course, which we just heard called for. We'll see another census at the end. That's why it's called numbers. It's a, it's a numbering of the people, according to their tribes, because it says in verse 4, they're going to war. They're also going to need to be organized, and so they're going to be organization. So we're getting oriented to where are they going and what are they going to do. They're going to be traveling and fighting a war in the wilderness. Okay, this is huge. Wilderness, what is Wilderness. Uh, this is, again, the third intro sermon of the series on the book of Numbers. We've examined, of course, the first word there, the Lord in the English translation, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, or Jehovah. No one knows how to really pronounce it. It wasn't pronounced. Uh, but the vowels there could either be Yahweh or Jehovah. The, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses. We looked last week at the mediator, Moses and how he points us to Christ. And then now we're going to look at the setting, which is in the wilderness of Sinai. So this word wilderness, we're going to first answer what is wilderness. What is it? Then we're going to talk about why the wilderness is not a place you want to go. And then third, we're going to say uh, why the, that Moses and people, the people were in the wilderness. So what is it? Why you don't want to go there? And why these particular people were in that place? First, what is the wilderness? It's not a place you want to go. Uh, in the classic film, uh, Princess Bride, Vizzini has a diabolical plot. He's going to kidnap Princess Buttercup and hold her for ransom. Now, this plot gets, you know, foiled. 
by a masked man in black. Quickly they realize as they've stolen Princess Buttercup that this masked man is following them and he keeps getting closer to them. And the leader, Vizzini, the evil genius from Sicily, he says to him, inconceivable. This plan was perfect. It's inconceivable that he is this close. He keeps getting closer. Every time they look behind him, inconceivable. They start to ascend a mountain uh, with a rope. And they ascend up this cliff with the giant carrying all other three of the party on his back. And sure enough, the man in black is very close. And he looks down over the mountain when they've got to the top. And he says, inconceivable. At that time, the swordsman looks at him and says, you keep saying that word, but I don't think you understand what it means. Right? All to say is that, what does it mean? What does it mean to say wilderness? What do you think of when you think of wilderness? Is it as nebulous as this usage of inconceivable? Uh, it's a hilarious scene. Uh, Lily, our three-year-old at the time, heard it and started going around saying inconceivable. You know, with no understanding of what she's talking about, but it was super cute. My goal for you is not that you're just cute. I want you to be cute with knowledge, okay? I want you, yeah, being cute, nothing wrong with that. But knowledge, what is wilderness when we're talking about it in the scriptures? So, what does it look like? You might think about it in a, in, in, I asked my kids and, and wife and everybody, what is it, when I say wilderness, what do you think of? One of them said forest. One of them said Jesus, the super holy one. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of, like, we all have different things we think of. What, what comes to your mind? Um, let's let's hit, the, hit the picture. So this picture is uh, an area in Norman, and that's somebody's uh, pictures in, the, in this area. This is a wilderness, Sutton Wilderness, right? Is that what you think of when you think of this? <laughs> the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. A nice trail through Sutton Wilderness, right? That, in, in America, uh, we, we have... You know, we, we, in the 1900s, or 19th century, actually, we had tamed the West. Grapes of Wrath happened. Uh, we, we got to the, all the way to the coast. We have tamed the West. And so uh, this, what we see in wilderness now is a lot different than what the first settlers to America saw as American wilderness, right? Because we have settled it, right? So we, in the uh, 19th century, and then on into the 1960s, started as a government enacting these uh, protections for wilderness, to preserve wilderness. So wilderness is a thing to be enjoying, but not, not a scary thing. It's something to enjoy and have wilderness areas and state parks. The first one was Yellowstone, I believe, in the late 19th century. So wilderness, when we think of wilderness, that's not it. Okay, that is not it. Let's get a more accurate representation, if you will. Bam, that's it. Okay, now this is a picture of the wilderness in Sinai. Okay, there's several different wilderness places in Scripture, but uh, when you're thinking about wilderness, think of no life, like, uh, very little life. It's just desolate place, rocky and and you know you sand and and difficult, difficult place to live. Right? In the Bible, um, it's never defined, but it's uh, in, in when, it's, when these words in Hebrew uh, are translated. They're translated as, uh, to, to uh, demonstrate the qualities of it, it's, it's wilderness, desert. If you have the NIV, you, your, your text might read desert, communicates some of that. Desolate place, wasteland, dry place, parched ground, deserted place, or remote place. 
you're going to see that uh, there's going to be very little rainfall. Uh, it's going to be difficult, uh, arid areas, uh, sandy. Uh, there's going to be granite mountains that you see there. Uh, in uh, John Beck's book on the wilderness, uh, Land Without Borders, he lists out several qualities of what the biblical wilderness looks like. And he says this, number one, vast and rugged. Number two, very little water. Did you know how much, how much rainfall that uh, the desert area or the wilderness area of Sinai has per, per year? Very little. Uh, and uh, it, to, to have good wheat and barley, you need, I believe, 14 to 24 inches of annual rainfall to harvest that well. Um, Jerusalem gets the lower end of that. Uh, and so they're very dependent upon uh, the Lord to provide the rainfall, right? And they've had various different situations where they are in need and in drought and famine. And you see that even in the New Testament. There's a need there in Jerusalem. But, you know, south in Egypt where they're from, plenty of rain, plenty of water. There's a Nile. In the wilderness of Sinai, you know how much inches of rain they get per year? 0.3 inches. Desolate place. Barren, dry land, right? Tough place to be. Third, uh, you know, it's a land without grain fields. That would make sense, right? A grain, grain made up a third of the diet, of the nutrients in the diet. And so if you don't have anything to eat, that's going to be a challenge to live in the wilderness, right? Number four, there are no permanent settlements there. No people live there, right? It's too difficult. You can't permanently live there. So there's no settlements there because uh, there's lack of resources to stay in life. Uh, and then fifth, uh, it's dangerous for travelers. You could lose your trail. You could get injured, obviously, because there's all this... Uh, these rocky paths, or the paths are, not well, uh, paths are not well worn out, and you could slip and hurt yourself. There's also dangerous in the form of predators, uh, snakes, scorpions. We'll encounter some of those, and probably even thieves and outlaws out there that could get you. Um, sixth, uh, there's no defined borders because there's lack of, lack of people there anyway. So people didn't have places. There weren't cities you could go to and places you could get supplies, food, and medicine, and things of that nature. Uh, seven, it lacked the necessities of human life. Okay, so uh, Deuteronomy 32.10 summarizes the wilderness as a barren, howling wasteland. All right, it's an undesirable and challenging place. This is established. Okay, what is it? A barren, howling wasteland, a very dangerous and challenging place. So let me read the first verse again. The Lord spoke to Moses in a barren wasteland, a howling and challenging place. Place. Think of that when you see this wilderness word. That's where they are, a challenging place. You need to know that if you're going to understand what's going to happen in Numbers. Why were they there? What was God thinking putting them in this position, right? So how does God use this wilderness? What is he doing there is the question. Thankfully, at the outset of their journey here and at the end of their journey, God gives us special revelation to tell us exactly what he is doing. First, in Exodus 13, on the front end of the journey, they have just left Egypt and are moving out of Egypt. They have been ejected from Egypt by Pharaoh. It says in Exodus 13, 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Would have taken them about two weeks on foot to get up this. It's up the coast, there's beaches, there's people, there's resources and rainfall and bread. All the things you might want. Roads that are easy to navigate. But God said, 
lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He led them around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle or in formation. So, so they have left Egypt, and instead of going due north to the promised land, up the nice road, there are settlements and fortifications and Egyptian soldiers that will terrify them, and the Lord knows this, so he's going to send them through the difficult way because that's the best way, the difficult way. And he sends them east and south through this wasteland of the Sinai wilderness. And you'll see, they've, they've, if you know the Ten Commandments, that's where they meet the Lord at the, the mountain, and Moses receives the Ten Commandments. All of this prior history from Exodus 13 to this verse we just read, Numbers 1-1, took a year and one month, as it says there. Leviticus took a very short time. And this Numbers census is going to take a couple weeks, three weeks. I mean, they don't have much time at all. It's quick now, but um, ultimately they're going to be in this place, in this wilderness position for 40 years. 40 years. It could have been quick and easy, but the Lord's going to move them through 40 years because he knows it's the best way. He says, lest the people change their minds and return into slavery again. Now, when the people left They went again to the south and the east through this area towards the Red Sea. It's a very wild and uninhabited position towards the Promised Land, south area of the Promised Land. And as you see, they're going to go around into further eastern wilderness areas and up and end up on the plains of Moab in a land that's very desirable. And two and a half tribes are actually going to settle there. We'll see that in numbers as well. But when they get there... And Deuteronomy, which is the next book, uh, is an address from God through Moses to this next generation of people who are going to enter this land, the promised land. It's reminders. And so in Deuteronomy 8, he's going to speak to him and tell him why he took them this way after the fact. So we got before and and now more revelation. It says in 8.2, you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, desolate, howling, challenging place, wasteland, that he might humble you, number one, test you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone. So he's going to teach them that man does not live on bread alone. So he's going to humble them, test them to know what's in their heart, whether they keep his commandments, and show them, teaching them, that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God. So those 40 years, he leads them in order that they, that, to, to know their heart and know that a man disciplines his son. As a man disciplines his son, in, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 8, it says, the Lord your God disciplines you. He loves them like a son, so he's going to humble them, test them, and teach them because he's a good father. That's what he does. This wilderness situation, the howling wasteland, the challenging area, is because God loves them as a son. It's not punishment time. It's not time out. You are in the best position. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Yep, even going through the wilderness for 40 years and everyone dying. Great stuff, right? Happy days. Um, first of all, he's going to, uh, he's going to teach that he might, or he's going to humble us, as it says there. 
He's going to say in verse 11 of Deuteronomy, God's going to say, uh, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Now, why would they forget? In Numbers 13, not too long from where we are now, they're going to send spies into the land to, to spy out the land, see what it's like, and get the fruit from the land and bring it back and report. Ten out of the twelve spies bring back terrible news. Oh, this land is filled with enemies, and they're strong, and there's a lot of them. There's no way we're going to be able to do this. And Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who believe and remember the Lord, believe. Everyone else has sort of spiritual amnesia. You know, and, and they say things like, if we had only died in Egypt or in the wilderness, why is God taking us to this land only to have us killed? They've been here for 38, 39 years of harsh environments. They could have easily just done without that. They're like, why don't God just kill us? We're going to die anyway. In Deuteronomy 8, it says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. Now, this is to the next guys. The guy, those guys that, that said, why don't you kill us? They were dead, the second generation. He says, listen to this. You're going to enter the land, and lest you forget, when you have houses and you live in them and you've eaten and you're full and you have herds and flocks and your silver and gold is multiplied, that your heart may not be lifted up and that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, desolate land, wasteland, challenging place, and with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there's no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and do you good in the end. Humble you, test you, teach you. That's what he's doing in the wilderness with these, with these people. He says, continuing in Deuteronomy 8, 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go up after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he's teaching them in the wilderness, that the Lord is able to provide for them. And when they get there and they get everything he's ever, prom he's ever promised them, don't forget the Lord gives you this and he can take it away. You didn't earn it. It's not due to you. It's from the, it's from the gift from the Lord. So number one, he's going to humble them. My first ever middle school football game, we actually lost 53-0. to zero. It was a humbling experience. We realized, hey, if we're going to ever win games, we have to practice. We have to really work on this because we're not up to the standards. Uh, we were humbled. We really had a lot of work to do. If we wanted to play better, if we wanted to win games, we had to work hard. In the Bible, God humbles those he loves because sin causes us not to see God as he is and not to see ourselves as we truly are. We think we are able to achieve anything we want to and to solve any problem and we think we can operate autonomously from God, we think that God absolutely doesn't matter, and we doubt his love for us, actually, because we think we have a better way. God humbles us because we're blind to the reality that we depend upon him every single moment of every day for our daily bread. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 6 to pray 
and thank the Lord for the daily bread. Every piece of bread, everything you receive is from the Lord's hand. He's humbling us in the wilderness, as he says there. uh, Pride is going to be a major problem for you and for me as it was for these people. And it has been since the Garden of Eden itself. God tells them, you're going to have all your needs met in the land. You'll be satisfied. You're going to be rich. And your heart will forget that the Lord your God brought you out of slavery. You will, you will have spiritual amnesia about everything that's gone, gone for. And you're like, how could that possibly, how could it possibly be? How could I go on sinning after knowing my Savior was crucified because God loved me with an eternal, undying love for me, and he sent his son to die for me and my sins and to forgive me and to, and to welcome me into his family, and I can go on and betray him. How can, how can that happen? Well, spiritual amnesia all the time. You know, they left Egypt, but the Egypt was still in their hearts, right? The sin was still in their hearts. We have sin, and we can foster the illusion that we don't need God, but living in the wilderness humbles us to help us to realize our limitations. They didn't have bread. They didn't have water. They needed, they couldn't live there. God had to miraculously make it work with his assistance or it wouldn't work. Humbling. It wouldn't work unless God did it. Number two, he not only humbles, but he tests them. On a test or exam, it's revealed what a person knows and doesn't know. Uh, You can't score a perfect score on the SATs just by guessing or filling in all C's, right? You've got you to actually think about each and every question, and you've got to weigh out the answers and figure out what is the best answer here. What's the best of the possible answers here? I mean, there may be several good answers, but you've got to figure out what is the best answer, and that takes judgment and wisdom and knowledge. And, and you're, you're going to choose what you think that answer is. It might not be the correct answer. It might not be the best answer. And the teacher uh, will grade it wrong and, and put an X on it, and you'll get a lower grade. And you'll whine to the teacher because you don't think that's fair. But tests are designed to evaluate how much you know and what you don't know. Colleges, military, professional organizations, certifications, they all set standards, and we have to meet them by taking tests. When I became an ordained minister, I was sharing this story with Joel earlier in the day about how my stomach was wrecked. I knew when I was taking taking my exams for ordination because I knew I was under the microscope, and I was being tested. And my future, uh, in a lot of ways, rested upon the outcome of this test. And, and that's, a, that's a harrowing, stressful thing, but that is actually what God is doing to the people here. He's putting them through extensive testing in the wilderness. It's one thing to think you can do something or desire to do something. It's another thing to be willing to do it, and, but are you able to do it? Uh, the tests and trials prove that. They're necessary. Not everyone can be an astronaut. Not everyone can be a Navy SEAL. Not everyone's going to be president. We, we, we gain admittance to those uh, through testing. Uh, every university has standards. So it is with the Lord. Uh, he, has a, he has a test to put us up to and say, are you worthy or are you not? Let that sink in. Are you worthy for the kingdom of God or are you not? Are you worthy or are you not? The testing. In Numbers, God took the people to the wilderness to let them reveal what was in their hearts. Ugly hearts. He removed them from the, from the Nile River, drove them into the wilderness, and they started grumbling and complaining against God, and, and they would not trust him. They would not keep his commandments. And then he teaches us. 
He humbles us, he tests us, and he teaches us. God taught them the most valuable lesson, who God is. He's long-suffering, he's faithful, he's just, he's gracious, all the things that he is. He is the actual provider of all things, and he knows them, and he promises to be faithful to them. He keeps his promises. He gives them manna. Manna was a grain substitute that they could turn into flour to eat, and it, and it came every morning. Isn't that amazing? Manna out of nowhere, right? God rains it down upon them for decades. The word of the Lord provides them, provides for them. It surpasses even the food they had in Egypt. In the wilderness, in the desolate, howling wilderness, the challenging place the Lord provides. It says there, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth in Deuteronomy 8. The wilderness develops spiritual health, humility, being tested, being taught that you couldn't get in Canaan, the promised land, or in Egypt. And they would see who they were and who God is. So you can see by the manna raining down, the hymn we already sang, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning new, by morning new mercies I see. Right? Like if you actually had to rely on God to rain down food for you to eat, and there was no food, you would know who brings the food, who brings the mercies, and who doesn't. Literally, mysterious bread and plenty of water raining and pouring out where there should be none. And even meat was provided for them. Why these lessons? Because he loves them. It just says he treats them as a son. He disciplines them as a son. As Hebrews 12 says, the father loves his son and disciplines them. No, no father would, would withhold discipline from his son. So those are the lessons for you today. If God brought his people into the wilderness to humble them, to teach them and test them, uh, might he be taking some things away from us, from you, uh, things that you might feel you can't live without because God loves you too much for you to be proud. Uh, whether it's the relationship that uh, you've always wanted, the job, the health, your legs, your health, your body. We must remove the gaze off what we have lost or what we don't have anymore um, and fix our eyes on what we do have. David knew this. He lived in the wilderness, and he says in Psalm 63, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. How hard is it to earnestly seek somebody you don't need? Listen to this. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, wilderness, where there is no water. Your steadfast love is better than my life. My lips shall praise you. He didn't look at what he didn't have. He looked at what he had, the steadfast love of the Lord. It was better than life. And he says, my lips will praise you in the desolate, challenging, howling, wasteland, wilderness. That's where he praised the Lord, not in his palace. If God tested Israel wilderness because he, Israel wilderness because he loved them, if he loves you, won't he also test you in order to prepare you to take possession of greater blessings? Now, you know what? You're in over your head. You can't pass the test. Your heart is not okay. You are not sufficient for this test. I hope that you learn that. When God tests you, 
you are not going to persevere and faithfully pass all the tests. None of us are. We're not qualified. We're sinners. We can strategize and come up with you know, productivity apps to really optimize our lives and hope that we can pass all the tests. But we've got to realize that productivity is not strategizing on how to get everything done and feel like when we have it all together, it's strategizing on how we can glorify God the best. And you know what? Even if we, if we, even if we thought right about productivity, we would still fail at it. Even if we had the right understanding of what, our, what the point of our life is, we would still mess up at it because we're sinners. I hope that you learned that lesson. A paradigm shift, right, must occur. Your life has to move from knocking off the next thing, going to the hardware store, going to the grocery store, picking up the kids, getting the work done, to thinking about actually it is God who gave me the desire to glorify him and the ability to get it done. As Philippians 2.13 says, my lips will praise him. When I have a lot, when I have nothing, my lips will praise him. His steadfast love is better than life. That's the goal. The feeling of wilderness can foster a leaning to depend upon and glorify God, of course. But it does not of necessity do so. Eugene Peterson writes this in his book on David. It says, wilderness in and of itself makes nothing happen. Saul and David were both in the wilderness. Saul was running after David, obsessed with hunting him down. His life was narrowed to a murderous squint. Meanwhile, David was running to God and finding himself in his God refuge, praying, wide-eyed and wondered, taking the glory, awake and ready for God's generous love, for a God who makes good on his word. We can't be naive about wilderness. It's, it's a dangerous position. It's a dangerous place. With wilderness with God is a wonderful place. Saul and David had different experiences of it because one was narrowed in on his murderous intentions and his, his desires. The other one was narrowed in on his knowledge of God, knowing him through it. That was Jesus' experience. What you must know is he took on flesh to save sinners who can't save themselves, whose hearts are bad, who've failed the test, who haven't learned the lessons, who are not worthy to enter the promised land. He has passed the test. We who get proud and self-important, we forget the lessons we've learned. We're not worthy or righteous or deserving of God's love. But you know what? Jesus is deserving of his love. Nonetheless, God steadfastly loves the people in this very place, in this wilderness place. And he loves people in this place, people who aren't worthy, who aren't righteous, who haven't passed all the tests. Each of you has a wilderness, not merely that you're experiencing a lack of something that you wish you had, but the wilderness is in you. It is your sin in you. You know what wilderness is? It says, I can't, I can't sustain myself. I can't live because I don't have the necessities. I don't have what I need. I don't have the water, the bread. I have no people here. I have no structures. I have no ability to choose God, to turn to him, to repent, and to believe in him, or to glorify him in any way in my heart. My heart is a barren wasteland. It's a wilderness. The bad news and the good news is the wilderness is not outside of me, but the wilderness is in me, and yet God still moves toward me and sends his son to save me from it. The wilderness has no capacity to sustain life long term. My heart has no ability to glorify and enjoy God long term without Christ. The wilderness is our condition. And not that we are fine and we have this figurative wilderness we need to go through to learn lessons all the time. We're not fine. The wilderness should tell us we are not fine. We don't just need minor modifications. We need a whole new creation. We need to be born again. And that's what the Lord gives to us. 
Life in the wilderness is a metaphor of how any of us can be saved. It is impossible. We need literally bread to run down from heaven. We need water to flow from where it shouldn't flow. And we need God to abide with us. We need something that is so surprising and so shocking that it makes no sense. And I'll tell you where it happens. In Matthew 4, hear this. Matthew 4, Jesus just been baptized and it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the howling, desolate, horrible place. It says, to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting and 40 nights of fasting, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones and, become, and make them become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered Satan and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quoted Deuteronomy 8. Blew the devil out of the water there. Just like completely passed the test. Had learned the lesson. Is humble. That's what's required. None of us makes it if it's not for Jesus doing that. That's what's called active obedience. Jesus was born for that. Jesus took on that. He covenanted with the Lord in the covenant of grace to do that for you. That's his active obedience. And then he goes and lays down his life at the cross as passive obedience to satisfy God's wrath on all of us and the justice on us for not being worthy, for not passing the test, for not remembering the lessons. And we didn't learn from the wilderness what we should have learned. And we enter in only by the merits of the active and passive obedience of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what it is. Hear that. That is the most surprising, strange lesson that we can learn from the wilderness is that Jesus himself went to the wilderness and failed, and did not fail, but accomplished what we could not accomplish. The good news is the free offer of the gospel is this. Jesus, again, took on flesh. He died to save lost sinners. Are you a lost sinner or are you not? This is the question you must know. You must know the answer to that. You must fall out of bed at 3 a.m. and be able to say, I'm a sinner, okay, and have no question about that. Number two, you have to know that Jesus will not turn away anyone who seeks him. You have to know that you can rely upon him, that you can approach him, and you can say, save me. You have to know you're a lost sinner. You have to know that I can be saved because I'm going to Jesus. And thirdly, you have to know that whosoever believes will be saved because of what Jesus did, not what you've done. He was actively obeying God's law, passing the test, learning, being humbled, so that you would be saved. And he died for your lack Fourth, those that respond to the free offer of the gospel, which is articulated, are not doing so out of our own ability or merits, but we're solely doing so by the gracious work of the Spirit who is drawing us. The same Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness drives you to Jesus. He He drew you to Jesus. That's why you know he loves you. He drew you to Jesus. Zion's wilderness is going to be transformed. Your wilderness is going to be transformed because God sent Christ to save you and sanctify you. Your heart will no longer be wilderness. Here's what it says in Isaiah 32. It says, verse 14, The palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, the joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. The higher are going to be brought down. And listen to this, it says, The Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness will become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Those who have none will have all in Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit will be poured on you, and your wilderness heart will be like a fruitful field, like a forest. Isaiah 32, 15. Hear this. In Isaiah 51, 3, it says, The Lord comforts Jerusalem. 
He comforts all her waste places, and he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. All that was lost in the garden of Eden will be made new and transformed and glorified. Joy and gladness will be found in her and thanksgiving and a song. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Absolutely not. He says, I will scatter like chaff, driven by the wind from the desert. That is your lot, your portion. I've measured it out to you, declares the Lord, because you've forgotten me and trusted in lies. That is our place. Wilderness, we can't change. However, the grace of the gospel says God will bring about a reversal, a surprising reversal. The wilderness, a place of desperation, deprivation, danger, attack, punishment. God delivers his people from it and through it. He leads you into it to guide you out of it. God will not give us what we deserve because in Christ, he received what we deserve in that great work of salvation to make our wilderness like Eden. So outside of Christ, you have no ability to change or to save yourself. No more than an Ethiopian can change that dark skin. No more than a leopard can remove his spots and be spotless. God loves many people in this room. Many people trust him. He's brought you into a process of salvation that includes wilderness. It includes people in this room who are experiencing wilderness like that in numbers, so to speak. Not literally living in a desert wasteland, but you've lost if it, includes, if it includes Christ's active obedience for you, though, if that suffering was for you, if his suffering, if the apostle's suffering was true, if the promises that he gave to us that we will suffer and share in his sufferings is true, then God will walk with you in the wilderness that you experience, in the suffering, in order to do what? Because he loves you, he will humble you, he will transform you, he will test you, and he will teach you. That's what he did for them. He will surely do it for you. The process of salvation in the Christian life is rooted not in your profession of faith, not in your baptism, not even in your birth. It's rested in salvation that occurred when God chose, the Father chose you, when the Son actively obeyed and laid down his life, and the Spirit poured out the love in your heart, and you, and you came to Christ. So hear this. Wilderness, for you, is not going to be some blind fate. It's not going to be happenstance. It's not going to be just life happening. It is well-intentioned by the will of the Father. It's his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all his creatures and all their actions. He's giving you wilderness for your salvation and your glory. That's why he's doing it. He loves you. He's humbling you. He's testing you. He's teaching you. And many of us will cross the finish line still running on fumes, a mixed bag of sin and righteousness, but hear this, God will welcome you. He will welcome you, not because you have faithfully navigated all that wilderness journey, but because Christ navigated the wilderness in your place. The Spirit led him in the wilderness. You will be welcomed. Four potential reasons why Christ will do that for you. He took care of your guilt. You have no more guilt for your sin. You're no longer polluted. That's gone. You're no longer a slave to that sin. And that sin has no miseries for you long term. It's over. It's done in Christ. Will you trust Christ alone in sal for salvation? Or will you trust your faithfulness? The wilderness will teach you that you can't trust in yourself. You must trust in Jesus. Let's pray. 
Our God, we ask today that you would lead us further along with you to trust in you, to hope in you, to rest in you, and to find salvation in Christ alone. We pray that this morning you would guide us and feed us and direct us to the body and blood of the Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this time I want to lead you to the the table of the Lord. This is a sacrament that God gives us for our senses to behold and understand by our taste, our smell, our sight, our hearing, our touch, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he betrayed truly offered up his body and his blood for us to, to accomplish salvation. So in the eating and the drinking, we are picturing by faith, or picturing for our faith, what is true for us by faith. That what was accomplished on that day 2,000 years ago stands. You will be welcomed, not because you're faithful, because of the faithfulness. When God gives a covenant sign, he says, I'll look in the sky. You can look in the sky, right? I'll look in the sky. Think of the rainbow. I'll put the rainbow up there. And I'll remember, I'm never going to destroy the earth like I did on that day with Noah. He remembers, not because he forgets. It's more for us that we will remember that he remembers. He gives us a sign so that we remember that he remembers us. Because that's what we need. He doesn't need a remember. He doesn't need a reminder. We have his reminder to see so we can remember that he remembers us and he loves us and he tests us. He teaches us. He humbles us because he loves us.